All right, hello, hello, and welcome to State of Cloud Native uh, EKS uh, or Native Clusters. We'll go ahead and we'll uh, talk about some uh, random stuff while everyone starts joining in. So, uh, hey, Chris, what uh, what games are you playing lately? What what what's taking up your time? What are you doing in your spare time? What am I doing in my spare time? Uh, I have attempted to get going in Gran Turismo Seven. It's a very hard. It's a hard game. Yeah. Like, I just don't have those motor skills. But then I think back to when I was in high school and I was playing, like, Gran Turismo 1 and 2. I still had the same terrible skills. So I feel like I haven't at least degraded my gaming skills. Um, Ghost of Tsushima, I think, just consumed most of my life for, like, February, March, April, May. Oh, wow. I became really focused on finishing that game. Brilliant game. Very good on the PS5. Anything too, or I'll say for, for, like, the racing games... It's like five minutes of me trying to not crash into the wall, and then it's me turning around and just going the opposite way, and then I'm just done. <laughs> so that's like I'm not very good. At <laughs> you're uh, you're 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 in the arcade playing Daytona. Yeah. Well, yeah. The the old NASCAR, like when the first like PC NASCAR uh, Daytona five was it Daytona five hundred that came I out. Daytona five hundred. Yeah. Yeah. It, just crashing, turning around. I was awful at racing games. I can't. I don't have the dexterity or. The idea of when to break and then when to turn. I just full speed through a through a corner and then just right in the wall. <laughs> I'm not getting in a car with you. Um, <laughs> no way, no way. If you come if you come down here to San Jose, I'm driving. Uh, I'm not willing to take that risk. For people that are just joining in, yeah. um, this is actually a discussion about about Kubernetes. Um, yes. Mike and I are just giving people some time to wrap up their previous meetings before we sort of jump into the meats of our session. Um, in the meantime, we're shooting the breeze. Mike, I think you're going to have to perfect your introduction. Yes. So let me introduce everybody. All right. So we got Chris Jones, uh, Director of Product at uh, Platform 9, and I'm uh, Mike Peterson, Technical Marketing Engineer. So uh, we do Kubernetes stuff and cloud-native things. Um, this discussion is going to be kind of about learning about Chris and then diving into uh, the topic, which, like I said, is EKS versus uh, native clusters. So we'll Talk about it. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Like we're we're monitoring uh, chat and stuff too, so we can we can respond. But uh, let's go ahead and yeah. uh, pass it off to Chris and go and get started. And say okay. So, how did you get into tech and, and and what moved you into product management? Like how did you how did you make it there? How did I end up where I am today? Um, first first off, I am Australian. I live in America now, um, and moving here is how I got into product. Um, how did I? How did I get into working in the world of technology? Um, I would like to say path of least resistance. I I went to RMIT in Melbourne. I did a, a degree in psychology. I did a degree in essentially computer science. Um, if you want to do anything with a psych degree, you kind of have to do a honors year and then go on and do like a master's or some type of like two-year clinical training or even a PhD. I was a bit sick and tired of being a broke student. So I decided let's let's use the other degree I have, see if I like the world of, of you know, technology, IT. And if I don't, I'll go back and get a master's in psychology and use that. Um, I was very interested in video gaming addiction, which RMIT... Wow circa 2007 told me that's not a real thing people can't get addicted to the internet and video games i guess that's changed history, sure. probably history has proved them wrong 
Um, so yeah, I started working at a bank in Australia. Um, I worked with a, a platform called BMC Patrol. They did all of the monitoring. Um, I looked after BMC Remedy, which is a help desk platform and an automation tool called Autosys that basically made the bank run. Like all the transactions, all the reconciliation, all the automation that people run in cron jobs and Kubernetes today. Um, that was all done by Autosys and Control-M, um, which really kick-started my career looking at the, the broad spectrum of everything in an environment, um, which is kind of a unique way to start a career. Uh, then spent the next 10 years living in the world of application performance management. That's which, awesome. So would yeah. you start out as a Linux, a Linux person or a Windows person? Oh, I'm a Windows person. Okay. I started with Mac as a kid. I mean, keyboard and mouse was just what I grew up with. Um, yeah, I, I like... I like a graphical user interface. I like a GUI. I like to drag and drop stuff. Um, I'm going to, I lived in WinSCP Win if I ever had to do anything. Um, but that said, if I was architecting a system for my prior product, Foglight, I would push people to run it on Linux because it was more stable. Yeah. Right. There was, it was just the better back, back end operating system to, to run the app on. Yeah. So you had putty installed, but now you can just use, uh, the, what, the Linux uh, subsystem, right? So you can SSH using that instead. Or do you still... Well, now you're using Mac, so you're not using no, a Linux desktop. I don't have a problem now. Yeah, I, I don't think I've used Windows for like four years. So do you think your background in uh, application... Uh, you said application... What was it? Uh, more monitoring and then also productivity slash... It was all... Yeah, all... I think back in the day, you could say APM encompassed all application performance monitoring. Um Hundred percent. Making products now, or yeah, because you have to understand the the entirety of what an application runs on, right? You can't just look at what a JVM is doing without understanding that it's talking to a SQL database that's running on some NetApp storage, and the problem about the app being slow isn't the app or the actual query to the database, it's the fact that database is sitting on a filer that's being clobbered by everything else in the environment. So you have to holistically look at that entire environment. And you know, the last thing I sort of did when I was still at Quest Software prior to Platform 9 was introduce monitoring for Kubernetes. And everyone was like, well, why is this so much more complicated? I'm like, well, it's smaller things, there's more of them. It has a higher rate of change. And people are probably going to run this on virtualized nodes in their data centers, all of a sudden you have contention in the cluster. You have contention on the VMs that are running the cluster, contention on the hypervisors, and if you are doing persistent storage, the persistent storage underneath. So I'll get um, us into the, the topic eventually, but let me, uh, I'll ask you one more question about your uh, background. So like, what's, what's your goal when you're building a product, right? So you've had a chance to really like build out a product here. What are your goals? Like, do you, do you start thinking like, what would make, what would make it easier for the user uh, and then do you start demoing different things that you want to bring in um, and test them out? Like, do you just test a bunch of different stuff and say, okay, this is the easiest to use or this is the most useful and then bring it into the product or what do you do? Oof, that's a that's a tough question. Um, always start with the market problem. Uh, I think there's a great model out there. Uh, I, I at least was introduced to it by the Pragmatic Institute. Um, is it a problem? Is it pervasive? And the golden third question, are people willing to pay for it? If you don't get a yes on all three of those, don't. Don't don't progress. 
Because if it's if it's not a pervasive problem, your market's going to be very small. If people aren't willing to yeah. pay for it, then, well, you're not going to get anywhere, right? Everyone's running a business to make make revenue and turn a profit so we can all have jobs and be employed. Um, so that's always like the foundational thing. The I think the part about building a product, launching new products, adding new services, changing features, it's all about that pain that users are feeling. Like how how's it impacting them? Where is it impacting them? And then how does that propagate across the industry? How does it more broadly apply to the, more than just one business? Um, I think it's it's a very easy trap for people to fall into is, is to hear a number of customers say, hey, I've got a problem with my network latency. Let's use an example. Um, let's, we need to fix that. So you start looking at latency as opposed to taking a step back and saying, all right, where is this impacting your business and how is it happening? And how does it fit more holistically into your infrastructure or your application design and say, well, and, and importantly, how did you get there? Where are you going? Because as soon as you sort of broaden that perspective, you can actually see that their whole reason for hitting it might be a bad design decision. So it's it's a problem that's on their journey, but because we in product or solution engineering, solution architects, consultants, you get to hear and see more ways of something being solved, all of a sudden you can suggest, hey, have you looked at this alternate path? So you might be able to fundamentally avoid fixing something. It's not actually a problem. It's just a manifestation of a different issue. Or you're able to see a pattern that's occurring and actually design a better solution to get people where they're wanting to go. Instead of focusing on this myopic issue, right? I've got network latency. How do I solve for that? There's many ways you could solve for that. Where are they going? Right? I'll say, so the interesting thing about you too is I think you're more of a, you're a technical product manager too, to where you like to get in and install things and demo stuff and like try to figure it out, right? Like, so you're not just like managing what's going on. You're like, oh, I'm going to install Argo. I'm going to install, I'm going to install X and I'm going to be able to like write about it, but I'm going to try to learn about this thing to see if it's useful. Um, do you enjoy doing that still? Like, do you get as much time to do that or, uh, like what's your what's your favorite thing that you've been playing around with lately? You know, if I'm doing a job interview, I don't talk about any of those skills. I, I hide it completely. Yeah. Like when I was in consulting, I didn't say I could write software. Ever. Ever. Right? It was just like this, oh, that's that's convenient that you can do that. Cause then you're at a customer side, it's like, all right, I'm gonna script this thing, right? I'm gonna do this weird PowerShell vSphere script to get some extra metrics into a monitoring product. Um, I think it's just out of pure curiosity. I need to know how it works or where it's going to go. I want to be able to have an informed conversation with my users, my designers, my software engineers that are building these things. Otherwise, it's like this case of everyone trying to dumb down or abstract or articulate to you their problem, but they can't use the words that would best enable that conversation. So I think it's I think it's paramount. I think if if you're a product manager, you need to understand what your product is doing, how it's doing it, and have a level of understanding of how to use it. Right? Otherwise when your users come to you and say, Hey, it's not working, 
Yeah. And that standard response of, well, it's working as we designed it, right? That every product manager has said and every other person in the world is like, well, that's a rubbish response. You aren't able to say, we designed it to do X, Y, Z, and you've introduced step N. Well, do, you, do you think that makes it easier for you to sell it to like stakeholders? Like, hey, we should add this because this. And then they ask questions, you can just answer it. Like you've got the, the CTO or something in there asking you, well, why? Right? Like, can you sell it a little bit better because of that, do you think? I think you can definitely articulate that broader word solving the problem you're facing by doing this step. Yeah. It enables that conversation. So what am I using right now? What I'm playing around with? Um, Argo CD. Um, you know, we've talked a, a lot to the market about just templating whole clusters. And we looked at, well, what is a good engine or a good vehicle to help enable that to happen? And along that journey, discovered Argo CD. Um, and that, that whole community, and I think it's absolutely fantastic that if you're doing cloud native and you're looking at really, truly seeing those benefits in agility, um, you need some type of continuous deployment engine. And Argo is an incredibly good solution for that. So why, why is it Argo CD time now instead of like two or three years ago? Like has, has stuff advanced to a point where like it's just easier to use it now? Or I know we're talking about I mean, EKS. It's a great build, which helps me immensely, right? I'm not going to lie looking at other tools out there, I'm like, well, if I have to use command line, my learning curve is significantly higher. But then that also means, right, I'm building tools to help businesses all around the world, not just in the Bay Area or really, really technical folk, right? There's a lot of people out there that are great at their job. But if the learning curve is extreme, like it is for Kubernetes, they're just not ever going to get there in a viable time. So, I mean, the GUI helped with Argo CD. But the thing with Argo and, and other tools like Flux that are in that that generation of continuous deployment is they were built for Kubernetes, right? Harness, you know, if we would pick a tool out there that works on the sort of broader spectrum of infrastructure, um, it, it would do CD with VMs, for example. It also has cool Kubernetes capabilities too. But Argo CD, open source, built just for Kubernetes. So why why Argo? Well, it was only open sourced, you know, recently. It's still an infant in the terms of a, a product life. Um, and it's exclusively built to work in a Kubernetes environment, which means it's, it's aware. It's able to lifecycle those assets much better. Than Do you think that, you know, a couple of years of Helm development have made it a little bit easier too? Like it's on what, version three, and maybe it's a little bit easier for templating out and they've, they've kind of fixed some of the, stuff in the first two versions, like no more installing what Tiller. Tiller is definitely a problem, right? One of the first releases of Kubernetes, of PMK, the, the Platform 9 Kubernetes service. Um, we had to have Tiller installed and that made doing Helm a pain. So when we launched our free platform, we actually ripped it out and then replaced it with version three, which has simplified the entire process. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting in there into the weeds, about CD, I think Customize has a lot of cool features and I'm, I'm really just sort of getting into that. Um, I think it's got a lot of powerful ways to help you sort of templatize your manifests. Um, gotcha. All right, so let's, yeah. let's move into the topic now. Since we <laughs> discuss everything, but uh, so why would you, okay, so the topic, why would you, build and run a Kubernetes control plane right now? Like, why would you do that? Is there a benefit? Like, what do you think? 
What do I think? So we support with the native clusters before we go to EKS, right? Like why would you? Yeah. Let's level set for everyone that's, that's, that's joining in. Um, we're trying to figure out a way to, to label clusters where you build the control plane and then clusters where you're consuming a service. So EKS, AKS, and GKE. So I use the nomenclature of a native cluster. It's just native to Kubernetes. You're running the control plane. So you'll see in our documentation, we'll talk about like a native AWS cluster. Um, why would you do that? Let's say you're, you're running a hybrid cloud, you're on-premise, and you want like-for-like -like clusters, 100% identical. Well, unless you're going to go down the path of doing EKS anywhere and, and running that or running the EKS distribution yourself, and then you have to figure out, you still have to figure out the, the control planes in your data center, right? And etcd management, um, that will give you consistency. So if you want the same API server flag, control flags, scheduler flags turned on in both environments, then that's your only option. You have to run a native cluster in a hyperscaler or any cloud or colo that you're running in. Um, that would be the first and most prevalent. Um, the other one that I sort of see is for people that are living at the bleeding edge or just want to play around with all the cool widgets and features is the, the ability to customize that control plane to really fine tune things for the ways that you want Kubernetes to run. That obviously introduces a, a world of new complexities. You know, you could be doing things that the community is not even sort of keeping pace with. It's like a new feature that's getting introduced. It could be alpha or beta and you want to try it out. Is it going to help with your application and infrastructure architecture moving forward? Um, that's a, another great reason to, to build a native cluster and operate those control plane nodes yourself. So we're talking about like the control, like there's, there's two ends, right? Like there's one end of like, what's the lag time for EKS on, on Kubernetes version? And what is the, the lifetime of support on older versions that you may want to keep running for, for specific reasons? Like you've got everything built out that uses a specific version of an API that hasn't changed for Kubernetes. Or like you might want to use like an old version, like you know, a couple years old or something like that, because you don't want to change, or you've you've got a contract that requires it. What what's the benefit there? Like, what's the lag time, and then are there benefits to running older versions and doing your own control plane if you have to? I think, I think running older versions is a bit of a dangerous game to get into, right? Um, especially with security, you want to be able to get security patches. Um, you know, there are ways out there to get a vendor to support older versions. Um, but once again, the whole point of being cloud native is to have that agility, right? To have that that speed, to have that execution capabilities. So I would definitely encourage people upgrade. Um, if you are running, if you are doing a, a native control plane, then yeah, you can pick and choose. Definitely a lot more. Um, if you look at, at EKS, it's got it's got versions it supports, right? We're releasing full EKS lifecycle support in the next couple of weeks. And when you go to build an EKS cluster, you've got to pick a very definitive version. If you're rolling your own, maybe using KubeADM and building it, you're just going to be able to pick what you want, minor or patch. So you, you're right, you do get that flexibility. Um, 
we say so, so some of the downside plus some of the upside is being able to use you know cutting edge or like something that's just released but then it's also are you worried about using something that's like release 0 0.2 like or 0 0.7 like maybe something like metal lb which or even like a cubevert or something like that previously which are just new these new projects that are that you can use them and everything but they're not to the 1.0 right like you people were using istio before istio became 1.0 um and they were using a production right like so yeah i mean sometimes you have to right you want the capabilities so you just you just sort of make that decision and do it right we run we run cubevert in production for customers right we run metal cubed um everyone was using the batch api and if if memory serves me correctly that was running in beta for a pretty long time so like is there what so i guess when we get to the eks like what's the what's the downside slash benefit of being able to run metal lb and get the new updates and stuff versus using like a service from from amazon for like a their load balancer service and just relying on them for eks i guess we can move into eks like why would you use eks well, I mean, yeah i mean if you're in the cloud use those cloud services you want the you know what aws i think called it very well and put it in the product names you want the elasticity Right, you might have extra costs from operating in the cloud, but there's definitely a level of agility and elasticity that you get. You can expand and contract more. If you're in a data center, it's very hard. You can't you can't turn around a Dell and be like, "Hey, take those servers back today. I want them tomorrow." Now they're moving to subscription models. That's a that's a different story. But if you've only got a hundred servers installed, you can't magically invent ten more. Right. Someone has to come rack them, stack them, plug it in, do the networking, um, provision it, install the operating systems if you're doing bare metal. Um, all the reasons why we're, why we're doing metal cubed in the data center and at the edge is to, yeah. to automate that provisioning. So if you're in the cloud, you don't have to worry about any of that. Um, if you're doing, even if you're doing a, a native cluster in AWS, you should be using their autoscaler and getting the benefits of being able to drive that elasticity. You should be using, you know, classical network load balances for, you know, your control plane endpoint, for example, or when you deploy a service that's using a type of load balancer. You want to, you want to leverage those cloud capabilities because that's going to fit in with all your other services. Let's say Cloudflare, that's external. Um, I would never really encourage anyone to go down the path of putting Metal LB in a cloud. Um, Especially Azure, it's got some it's got some fun networking requirements. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, EKS or AWS, you you want to leverage them for their strengths and not create barriers between where you are, where they are, where they are, and what you can get from that, for sure. Um, so some of the benefits maybe of running on prem and using something like Metal LB two is it's an open source project, so I can go in and, and create features if I want them, or at least propose features and get them get them adopted. Whereas yeah. maybe something on EKS is going to be more opinionated. Like if I'm using their just native ingress that gets deployed with the cluster, or if I'm using their their load balancing, like it's opinionated and I have to do whatever they say. But if I want to do something special that they're not going to support, or maybe it'll take too long to support, I can get involved in open source, right? So Metal LB is getting the feature sets close to what you can get in a provider. Yeah. I guess that's another beneficial of, of, of native or on-prem. We're talking about on-prem native. Uh, yeah, you're saying use, use their stuff. So, yeah, I mean, if you, if, if you go native in the in a cloud, I think I was I would strongly encourage you to leverage their services. Like you're going there for a reason. Um, otherwise, you I think you're just creating a Frankenstein that's going to be a bit painful to operate, especially on the network layer, right? You're going to have to create rules and policies inside of AWS that are outside of the cluster that allows 
connectivity to flow correctly. Um, so say I'm, I'm trying to figure out, oh, I want to, I want to move, I want to move to containers. I want to move to Kubernetes. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. What, what is the, the easiest way to get started if I don't have hardware moving into like, why would you use EKS or something like that? Would I, would I use EKS? Should I jump in there? Like, what if I don't have anybody that's used to using Amazon and are used to the account management and that kind of stuff? Like how, how big of a hurdle is it to get started after you've just deployed the cluster and give permissions to everyone and... Well, I mean, that piece you just sort of glazed over there, I think is the complexity, right? EKS is a fantastic service. It gets you up and running. That cluster comes, batteries included. There's there's storage. Awesome. That means you can deploy persistent apps. You don't have to go around and set up storage classes. Um, the CSI drivers are installed. Once again, all connecting through into those AWS services that allow you to move really quickly. Ingress, it's there. Load balances are there. Um, if you were to go the, the route of, hey, I can run a VM on my laptop, let's give Platform 9 Bear OS a go, you'll have, to, you'll have to bootstrap in storage, right? You're going to have to figure out a way to do that. You're going to have to learn about load balancing. So if you, if you want to learn fast, the easy way, go EKS. And I think there's a lot of users out there that sort of done EKS, they go on-prem, they start doing something and all of a sudden they're like, oh, there's all these things I just never knew about because they were, they were just provided. Um, I started learning just using virtual machines in our cloud that we use internally. So I had to build it all out, bring it all together, go and create like subnets to give to MetalLB so I could have a, a service exposed and I have to use node port or proxy and, and figure out all of that stuff. Um, which I think are good things to learn about. If you're going down the Kubernetes world to go cloud native, you need to know about these concepts. Otherwise, at some point in time, you're going to hit, you're going to hit, you're going to hit them, and be stuck. But EKS, they're all pretty, they're all pretty much solved. But I think one of the biggest hurdles you're going to face almost instantly is identity and access management and distributing cube configs to people, so they can actually access the cluster. I think on-prem, right, like day one, like, oh, I've got Kubernetes installed. And then you, you try to run your first, like, thing to show off, like, how it works. And it doesn't work because everything's using a load balancer, like, all yeah. the examples and stuff. And you're like, oh. <laughs> so yeah, because they're all built for the cloud. Yeah. Right, Google's, Google's done a great job in providing the community a lot of really worthwhile, like, services and examples and microservices apps. Um, you know, the... Artifact Hub and all those Helm charts out there. Oh, I'm just going to try Word. Let's, let's try WordPress. That's a great thing. It's a Helm chart. Click go. It'll deploy onto an EKS cluster. But as soon as you start doing something yourself that doesn't have, let's say there's no storage class. Yeah, you're done. But then, then you have to learn, right? So what do you do? You're learning command line, I've already I've already expressed this. I love I love being able to see and not have to type a thousand commands to like visualize in my head what's going on. Um, if you're getting started with EKS, you definitely want something that's providing you that graphical user interface into the cluster. Whether it's the Kubernetes dashboard and installing that into the cluster once it's up and running, or importing a cluster something like Platform Nine or other other services out there that let you see what's going on. Um, 
So you think that's going to help out there that have like just deployed EKS and they're like, oh, this is easy. And then they say, let's do it. Let's do it on prem. And then they, that, that's like you're saying, they have to learn all these things. So it's, it's yeah. a good gateway. But then, then as soon as you, you start doing stuff, like, oh man, there's all this stuff I don't know. Right. Like, and there's so much, so much more to learn. So I guess not having the people, the people to be able to learn that means that using something like EKS will be, could be a easier and, and faster way to get your developers running. But then, yeah, it, says, it comes at a cost, right? Like there's gonna be a cost associated with everything you do. Um, yeah, I mean, and you're still going to have to ask the community for questions, right? How do I upgrade? What's the best way to test for that? How do I know what the API changes are? Right, I've talked to a lot of customers out there that literally build a new environment on a, the new version of Kubernetes, deploy all the wraps, see what breaks, and then then fix the wraps, but then and then upgrade. But let's say let's say you've been using cron jobs. You were unaware of the it went from beta to JA. You just didn't see that. That's not going to be a fun upgrade. All those manifests need to be changed. So you're going to have to contend for that. Who's helping? Well, that's definitely not AWS's job, right? Making sure that something else hasn't changed in there, like a line isn't different. So you're doing a bunch of troubleshooting. You're you're trying to deploy it, and it just keeps spitting back out. This is wrong, or this failed. <laughs> Another reason to to adopt Argo CD and GitOps, right? The I like to say the big thing about Kubernetes that fundamentally changed, I think the way that at least large enterprises look at these things is it, I feel like it kind of joins infrastructure and applications together, like fundamentally just like sticks. You know, I remember troubleshooting JVM issues and we're all like, right, it needs... The VM that like that, that RAM needs to be dedicated because the way that the JVM is expecting it to be there is it's not shared. It's not a shared resource. And you got these VM v, VMware admins going, oh, but we can't do that. That's not that's not that's not going to give us the benefit of of running a virtualized environment, right? We can't like over allocate things. And it's like yeah, but you've got your entire business running on Java applications. You're over allocating the RAM. And then you have a thing that's inside the VM that's taking behavioral actions, assuming it's got a physical resource. And that's causing your slowdown of performance, therefore your loss of revenue because no one can sign up. It's taking it's taking five seconds to respond and they just leave. Or your checkout's running slow and they think it's broken, so they just go buy the book on Amazon. Right. So they were thinking about like VMs. They're thinking about VMs in the way that most people would think about it, but they were doing it different. Like usually you would think, okay, this VM might have like someone using it 30% capacity at this time and then there's gonna be different people using it at different times but they're like 100 percent hitting it the entire time and they've oversubscribed memory is what you're saying yeah so yeah i mean this was common like java is everywhere now that was pretty set and forget i'm making a vm development and the application team have told me it needs 32 gig of ram as much as i disagree as much as i don't want to dedicate that ram to it i'm going to do it but then i'm going to walk away and go do the rest of my day job but I mean, that doesn't hold true with Kubernetes. You go look at a manifest file for an application and there's a multitude of parameters that need to be set up to ensure that A, it gets the resources it needs. B, it doesn't use more resources than what it could need and then take out your entire cluster because you've got some app that's gone haywire and it's just using all the available resources on the nodes that you have running in your cluster. So all of a sudden, the people that were just like, hey, I'm running apps on a VM. This is really simple. There's a, 
a much greater need for them to be aware of how that application is actually operating. Right, it's that glue that's now sticking the two together that developers and application support teams need to learn about, know about, and do. And the operations teams also need to pay a lot more attention because it's critical, right? It's not just like VMware lets us over allocate and live with the consequences. If you do that in Kubernetes, you're going to have an outage, a long, a long outage. As you go through, find all those manifests, figure out what's set, what's not set, retune, rebaseline. And if you do that in a silo as an operations team, DevOps, platform ops, all of a sudden, you're going to have things that are manifesting that are impacting your customers. Right. So then you're talking about setting like certain you do like requests and limits, right? Like so you're you're yeah. setting requests, you're setting limits. Like that's something that you run into with like uh, Jupyter notebooks and that kind of stuff too. Like it has a set amount it needs, and then you want to make sure it doesn't keep going because it'll take up as much as it can to get that job run to run fast. Yeah, so yeah like, but if you set that limit arbitrarily and you don't tell the application or the engineers, yeah. then all of a sudden they're like, oh, login's running really slowly today. What changed? Nobody knows. So the application team is going to go start looking through their code and opening up some, you know, tickets with, with their engineering team. Like what happened in the last release? Not knowing that a DevOps admin was like, oh, it's using too much RAM. Here's a limit, save, patch, done, walk away. Or the test environment, they're just running without limits, but then they get in production <laughs> and then they're like, oh no, everything's limited. You, you know, you yeah. can't take up too much. Well, I remember like back in like 2012, it was funny because like, you talk about like, oh, I just need 32 gigs of memory uh, arbitrarily. Like, I, I don't know why. We, I would get requests as a VMware admin. Hey, can you can you give me a 512 uh, gigabyte memory, uh, you know, server? I was like, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. I don't have that much. I don't have that much on a single server. I can't just throw like 512 to you. Even if I oversub, that's more than like 2x of what I have, right? Like there's like, oh, I just got to do all this stuff, but I got to work on this. I was like, I can give you like, you know, 32 or like maybe like you know 48 or something like that, and then I can give you maybe like 200 to 500 gigs of storage, but I can't give you like this is virtualization. I'm not. I'm not. I can't. I don't have this huge computer just to, to give to just you. I was like, I'm not giving you the entire host. Yeah, basically. Right, I just spent $30,000 on this piece of hardware, a bucket load of money on VMware licensing. Yeah, and then some app team is like, yeah, we need the entirety of it. it yeah, works right. now. <laughs> that was a big thing. Like my old product, Foglight, that's written in Java. It could, if it was looking at a, an environment with say like 30,000 virtual machines and it's collecting metrics, you know, every minute. That's a lot of data, right? A lot of data. So you have to plan for networking stuff too, just to get that to work, right? Like, well, I mean, one time the engineering team came back and was like, so we did some rough calculations for one installation to support 30,000 virtual machines. I'm like, guys, those resources are too high. I might, like, we need to make this code it's a lot more efficient. Because I'm, like, I'm not going to a customer and saying, hey, I'm going to take half of your ESX iHost to run a VM to monitor the virtual environment. Like that makes the, the cost of that software pretty expensive because it's like, wow, you've got half of one of my $20,000 blade servers. Like, no thanks. But yeah, look, if, if you're running Kubernetes, you're going to hit these problems. Then you're going to hit them running cloud, na like a native cluster, and you're going to hit them running an EKS cluster. That's not going to solve those issues. That's when you need someone to help, consultancy, someone like Platform 9. There's other options out there upstream, ask Slack, community boards, 
see, oftentimes too, you're not, if you're new to it, you're not going to know that's what the, the, the problem is, right? Like I'll go back to the Jupiter, you know, Jupiter notebook. Like I just kept getting kernel, kernel kept dying, but I didn't know what was causing it. I'm like, am I not giving enough CPU? So I have to test that. Am I not giving enough memory? It was because I had set the memory limit to four gigs and it needed at least five to six. So it would hit that limit and just break. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't designed in a way to where it would be like, okay, I can just exist with this. It's like, I need more. Um, yeah. I, I mean, and then there's, there's still infrastructure related issues, right? Just cause you're in the cloud doesn't mean you, you can just be like, I don't have to learn anything. Do I use IPV IP tables or IPVS? Should I use the EKS CNI that's native to AWS? Or should I use something like Calico? Um, can I do BGP? If you've got a large distributed application, you might want to look into how that can give you better performance. But then it's like, okay, I'm going to use Calico. I've got more than 50 nodes. What does that mean? Well, that means you need dedicated route reflectors. If you don't have dedicated route reflectors, then you then have every node in your cluster trying to update the routing table for BGP amongst everyone. That... That has catastrophic outcomes, right? Like, service mesh should I use? There's a hundred of them. <laughs> Everyone's coming yeah. out with it every week. You choose EKS CNI. Now you have very well documented. If you are on EKS and you are wondering where to see this, it is available publishing GitHub from from Amazon. Each instance type has an elastic network interface limit that gives you pod limits. So you could be looking at a an instance type in AWS and thinking this feels right for running my environment and you think, ah, oh, I can fit 50 pods for each of these instances based on like rough historic data and in the Excel spreadsheet. What you need to bring into account there is using the, the EKS CNI, how many pods can actually be running on that node at one time? Because if you calculate 50, but because of the way the, the CNI operates, it's actually 38. Well, now you've got a problem. Your math is not going to work. And it, it, you're going to, it's going to hit, like the issue is going to hit when you're scaling up and you probably need it most. And then you're sitting there trying to figure <laughs> out. What you're yeah. Yeah. You're getting busy marketing. Marketing's gone out and been like, oh, we did this great live stream. Let's, pr let's promote it. You're getting all these great signups. The DevOps seems like, oh my God, the world is burning. What's going on? <laughs> I'm going to open up an AWS support ticket. And like, everything's working fine. The problems in your in your app, and you're like, wait a second, no, no, my app's fine. It's the infrastructure problem. And as I described with VMware, it's now worse. You need to understand like a lot more of of the stack, as well as that the way that the manifest impacts the way an application's running. So you've got multiple layers to be paying attention to. I'm sure as people scale and people use uh, the cloud more often, they, they start realizing there are limits. Like it is not a limitless resource. There are built-in limits so that you don't break things for other people and stuff like that too. So I'm sure as people scale, a lot of them have run into it. And I've heard some interesting stories too about like how they just run into limits. Like you're talking about pod limits, you're talking about like even like external IP addresses that you can have per per like cluster. There are limits, right? Like yeah. and, and you're... You're gonna hit those limits and learn it the hard way, or like maybe be able to read about it somewhere else and, and figure out beforehand. But there's limits. Limits you're not gonna have maybe on bare metal locally, right? Like not the same the same thing. So let's move into uh, say, are there? I know we're getting we're getting close to time. We're going pretty good. Uh, we'll see if we have any questions. If you have questions, go ahead and uh, post some questions. We can answer them. But I'll move on to the next topic. Uh, are there 
are there use cases you kind of touched on it before are there use cases use cases better suited to either like is there a use case better suited to a eks cluster versus a native cluster like maybe like you have to have more control and, and access to the control plane for logging or I mean, the first one I touched on was consistency. Okay. You're running hybrid. Or let's even say you're going multi-cloud. That's another good reason to go native. So you have consistent across all those cloud providers. Um, even using someone like Rackspace or a digital ocean, you didn't want to use their, their Kubernetes service, right? Um, if you want to use those bleeding edge features, then this is going to be your only option. Um, to me, they're kind of the, the biggest reasons to do it. Are there advantages to one or the other? Um, I mean, if you're doing DIY upstream open source, the burden of running that control plane is going to be significantly higher than just using EKS, AKS, or GKE. That's for sure. So you could sort of say that's a detractor. Like there's, there's more you have to manage. Um, the, the infrastructure you're provisioning for that, if you're not running the, the control plane nodes for a value add, right? You're just doing it for pure joy and 2am wake up calls. Then you're going to be paying for those three, five nodes that are running the control plane services that are hosting at CD. You're going to be paying for those services. They're running. And if you've got 25 clusters, then all of a sudden you have 25 by five and you're, you're paying for those resources, right? So if you're doing this, I, I would say that you want to, you want to be doing it for a good reason. Gotcha. So as you're saying, like maybe I've got a bunch of uh, on-prem stuff and, uh, and I'm running uh, bare metal. I want to make sure that everything that I've got running internally reflects what I'm running in the cloud. It, it could be beneficial to run my own control plane there and have the exact version of everything that I'm using without worrying about EKS not being able to support. I mean, a lot of stuff, you're just going to install it afterwards, right? Like a lot of stuff you install after you've got Kubernetes running, but but some of the feature sets that are involved with e, with EKS may be different than you want. Like you could theoretically set up a bare metal node or you set up no nodes on EKS or not EKS, but Amazon and run metal LB if you're running that locally so that everything's exactly the same. You're running the same ingress controller. So like that's kind of a benefit. But then like, yeah, if, if you're running everything on Amazon and you're not using anything else, then like there's probably no real reason to maybe run your own control plane unless you get to a certain point where there's yeah. a requirement. I, I, yeah, I, I would think the majority of the users wouldn't. Right, and this is why the hyperscalers just obfuscate them. Right, it makes a lot of sense. Right, we, when we do a native cluster or something on-prem using PairOS, the the control plane's there and it can be customized. We've got a few customers that really push push the limits, push the boundaries and say, hey, I'm going to change X and we'll work with you to do that, right? But they're, once again, they're the ones that are really looking at what's coming upstream, looking at what's new in each release and then putting that into a lower environment and saying, hey, how does this help me operationalize my, my applications? Oops, no, that was a bad idea. Let's roll that back. Um, but for the majority of customers, we're saying, look, it's there, it's tuned. We have all everything into now. Um, our control plane is in our doc site, right? If you want to go and look at what we're setting and how we're doing it, it's there. Um, so, one of the things too about like 
moving into Amazon is you might be hiring a full-time person that's just managing identity and access management because you're going to have some of the engineers be like, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> like, I don't want to, I don't want to interact with that. I remember getting started with it uh, in a previous, a previous life. And it's just so much, it's so much overhead to where like, I just didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. I mean, you could, you could say I'm going to go OIDC with EKS. It has that, right. And use that as one of your, the, the chaining methods of authentication, which means that the users don't have access to the, to AWS. They have access to the EKS cluster, but now you're, you're saying, how do I map users to roles and cluster role bindings, right? Kubernetes is not aware of the groups, but it knows how to validate the user. And then then it all goes into RBAC and you need to go solve that problem yourself. So it's one way of alleviating having to do everything in, in AWS, but it's not going to solve your kubeconfig distribution problem. It's not going to refresh it. It's not going to give you, you know, token management that you can revoke. It's not going to simplify role-based access control. And it's not going to give you the tooling that you need to put out there and distribute to all of your users that need cluster access. Right. I think we're we're getting to time there, Chris. Do you have any uh, additional words of wisdom or like closing thoughts or anything before I uh, let everybody know how they can get in, get in touch with us? Words of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, it's Friday, right? The weekend is coming. Words of wisdom. Right. Enjoy, have fun, get out, do something, move. Um, yeah, that would be my word of wisdom. Find a fun wine. Hang out with friends. All right. So we're gonna do these uh, every week on Friday. Uh, if you want, you can join us on Slack. There's the Slack information. Um, join Slack. It'll put you in the general channel. I'm posting information there that you can you can see about the uh, the next one coming up. Uh, if you want to talk about the uh, the show, you can jump in uh, State of Cloud Native. And if you want to just reach out to me directly or get one of our wizards connected to you, you can just uh, talk to me uh, at M. Peterson. But uh, thank you, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Uh, no I hope everybody uh, got something out of this. Uh, see y'all uh, next next Friday. Awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you.